1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, this is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. I had the pleasure to talk with Autumn Womack, professor of English and of African-American studies at Princeton University, about her new book, The Matter of Black Living, The Aesthetic Experiment of Racial Data from 1880 to 1930, which was published from University of Chicago Press in 2022. Womack trained in English and comparative literature, so the book is central to literary studies, black studies, American studies, and allied fields. But I wanna make a strong pitch for this book for scholars in science and technology studies, in history of technology and history of science, or really anybody interested in, in data sciences, in developing new creative methods in our own research, or for thinking about the interplay between the sciences and artistic cultural production. As you'll hear, this project was a collaborative effort between myself, Professor Womack and graduate students in my grad seminar on science and technology studies at Vanderbilt. I hope you enjoy the conversation.
3: Welcome, Professor Autumn Womack, and thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. I want to begin by saying that Vanderbilt University, which is where um, we are recording from, uh, those of us in the Science and Technology Studies class, that Vanderbilt occupies the ancestral and traditional lands of the Cherokee and Shawnee people, and this land was unlawfully ceded in 1795 in the Treaty of Hopewell. And we in this class recognize native sovereignty and we're committed to holding ourselves and uh, Vanderbilt University accountable to the needs of native and indigenous communities. Um, And I also want to say that this is December of 2022 and so we're especially excited and keen to talk with you. Um, because we've been we've been reading you all semester long, and we're speaking into a political moment in which a former president um, has just announced candidacy um, for presidency again in the same week as uh, meeting with uh, white supremacist um, leaders in the U.S. That there's questions around the status of science and global warming, and also lots of possibilities for transformation and the redistribution of power in the the academic fields that we all work in as well. So this just feels like a really um, evocative and especially exciting and inspiring time to be talking with you um, in light of your book. Okay, so to get rolling about the book. So the book is about racial data, but it comes at racial data from a different set of commitments and assumptions than I think more um, traditional science and technology studies and history of science um, comes from the idea of of racial data. And so just in terms of the nuts and bolts of it, the book focuses on America and it specifically looks at this period from uh, US reconstruction, the failed reconstruction through the black arts movement um, sort of through uh, the start of the 1930s and I think you really persuasively uh, show that that period in particular not only has been understudied so it's not merely gap filling though I'm actually a huge fan of filling gaps Um, (laughs) but it's also crucial to understand um, the history and the practice of technologies and racialized data making. Um, and its political consequences um, for that period. So the, the earlier period enlightenment to ballpark 1850, um, has been incredible work. And you you refer to uh, Britt Russert's amazing book, Fugitive Science as an inspiration. Um, and then later work in the, the mid 20th century and post-war period of um, black science, technology and politics. Um, but you're really looking at this period in between Um, And it's because you're saying that there were two concurrent experiments going on at this time. The first were experiments with technologies. And so the book is organized around three technologies Mm -hmm. that make up three, what you call chapters, but there's, um, we might think of them as sections um, because they're these really uh, thick and robust (laughs) conversations about first the social survey, second the photograph and, and photography technologies, um, and then film and ethnological films, these sorts of things. And then in addition to technology, the second experiment was the political experiment of black freedom. Yeah. And you show in the book how these, the experiments with the technologies and the experiments with black freedom really leaned on each other to yield what you call really sort of excitingly undisciplined data. Um, And this is sort of officially racial data that actually undermines um, the premise that the sciences can really fix and firm up black sociality that it can really be pinned down. So you've got these two experiments going on. So just to, to start us off, could you just um, play around with the idea of undisciplined data? What supports undisciplined data, and what are the political opportunities that it that it affords?
2: Yeah. No. Thank you so much. And that was such a beautiful um, overview, and so kind of generous in its its analysis of what the book is trying to do. So thank you um, for that. Really careful, and I think. Um, correct reading. Like it, it got at what I was trying to do. Um, so this idea of undisciplined data, um, which I think you you are really right to identify as emerging right from at the intersection of the impulse or how the book what the book describes as the imperative of 19th century social scientists, reformers, intellectuals, really kind of the entire modern world to understand or to solve the quote-unquote what was known as the Negro problem. Um, And so this was an imperative that really relied upon a set of technologies um, and a really well-rehearsed repertoire of Seemingly objective study and um, statistical analysis, right? And so the statistical analysis was pretty rudimentary. I mean, it was really developing. This is the moment where we get like the rise of something like the bell curve, right? Um, but it was the statistical analysis that they were working with. Or I shouldn't even say analysis, study, I should say, really relied upon kind of simple charts and graphs that compared information, right? Um, and the idea or the goal of these kinds of charts and graphs is that you, that you can understand Black life better if you organize Black life and Black living into certain kind of categories. So for example, birth rates, death rates, educational tendencies, where people live, kind of all of these things that are quite social, we can organize them according to data. Um, And if we can organize Black people and Black life and the way that they live into these data sets, right, then the idea is, then we can actually control what's happening in the aftermath of reconstruction and its failures, which was, as many people thought, total chaos, right? Just total unruliness, ungovernability. Um, The experiment of emancipation failed, many people said. Um, So that's like on the, the one side, like the idea that data can be disciplined. And what the book is really looking at is this moment when actually the, what I describe as the forces of Black life, which is to say, um, kind of the the social, the social aspect of, of of how Black people are in the world, which is to say that um, kind of being together or having kids or getting married or the things that drive you to go to school, right? Kind of a different complex set of factors that go behind the thing that might be reduced to the fact, how that actually kind of doesn't actually always sync up quite so easily with these disciplining structures, something like the statistical chart. Um, So what happens when Black life and these disciplinary forms confront each other, I argue, is actually kind of a a, a rupture um, and a really, I think, exciting one that throws into relief kind of the limits of all of these disciplinary data formations and structures and ideas um, and actually demands that we see Black life and what I describe in the book as Black living, right, so something that's always kind of developing and moving um, and relational, that sees those as kind of not automatically, um, not a smooth or easy fit, right, um, and then so we are we are forced to kind of confront and see and perceive Black living and Black life um, in a different way. I mean, more simply put, kind of the more simple answer is that the book really asserts that what it describes as Black living is kind of always undisciplined data because it, it even as it's being named as data by these kind of normative structures, it's always kind of undermining and undercutting and pressing against and pointing out the, the asymmetrical relationship between Black life and Black data in these really, I, I think, kind of beautifully disruptive um, ways.
3: Yeah, that is, that's so, um, that's so interesting. And I feel like really useful and um, helpful if we also take, in addition to sort of uh, thinking about Black living, we take this to help as an inroads to understand technology, and like Mm -hmm. these really traditional understandings about what technology is, and how it works. So um, one of the premises of the book that is that during this period, um, and this really, I, I think, rings, rings true, um, that these technologies of the social survey and photography and film um, were unstable in terms of the standardization of yeah. how you're, or, you know, quote unquote, supposed to use them and yeah. how you're supposed to read them. Yeah. And that it was that sort of, Openness, yeah, around like what the heck you're supposed to do and how yeah. you're supposed to inter- you know, interpret that, this. Yeah, that yeah. opened up all of these these opportunities for the, yeah. the black intellectuals and cultural producers, um, and and so that's what what helps get at the idea that um, racialized data, sort of like underscored data, if the idea of data that it's pinning people down, it's fixing them in time and space, that. The idea of um, black living and black sociality, it by definition, defies that because it's dynamic, it's relational, all these yeah. sorts of sorts of things. Um, so so sort of to to shift us um into chapter one, which is yeah. really digging into the social survey yeah. as a method in particular, um. Can you, I wonder if you could just really simply describe what um, a social survey is during mm-hmm. this period and its affordances.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. So the social survey emerged and really took flight in the U.S. context in the 1880s, and it was the direct predecessor of um the social survey that emerged and took off in a British context by folks like Charles Booth. Um, And in the US context, it was a mode of first person investigation done either by an individual or a team um, that relied upon total immersion into the community, right? So it threw away the idea of kind of a detached observer who um, might gather information that, or assemble information that other people had already gathered, right? So it's not like looking at the census data and then creating a report based on that. It's all about you are with the body of people or the community or the social phenomenon that you're trying to study and you are interviewing people um, on a daily basis. Sometimes they lasted for a month. Sometimes the duration was a year to get information about the social life, right? So the social survey, the idea of the social really functioned twofold there. On the one hand, it was trying to measure and register what social life was like in this community. So say the Lower East Side, New York immigrant community, right? But on the other hand, it was kind of a social, the, the methodology was social insofar as you would knock door to door with something that they called a schedule, which was a list of questions and you would fill it out. How many people live in this house? What do you do for a living? What do you do for fun? Questions like that. How many kids do you have? Where do they go to school? Um, and really trying to get a, a full portrait of how people lived, right? Um, and so one of the, the, the ethoses that was behind this was, proximity, right? You had to kind of be up close, um, not just kind of really staring up close, but kind of living alongside. so it has all kinds of limits that now in our 21st century moment, we can understand quite quite clearly like this really extended the reach of social control and like made it super super up close, right? Like kind of there was no escaping a disciplinary gaze or disciplinary arm. Um, these were largely for the most part white women who were doing these um, these kinds of social surveys and social surveying or they were the the um, they were the bodies on the ground, right? And so there's also a very familiar kind of dynamic of like white liberal reformers, female reformers going in and trying to fix the social, trying to reform it into their vision of what the social should be, right? What was proper and what was right. And at the very same time, it was a really exciting method, practice and form right, in this time period. And in this chapter, I really think about it as a a method and a form, right? So after they did all of these surveys, they would bundle them together and publish them in bound books, Um, and this was the social survey. And so in the US, the Pittsburgh survey was kind of the canonical one. It was six volumes. It took years of studying, and they were really trying to get at kind of the social fabric of Pittsburgh and its working class. but what was really exciting about it um, was on the one hand that it could give all this new information that hadn't been, you couldn't, you couldn't just see or perceive or get at through kind of dry statistical um assemblage of using census data to make sense of what was going on. Um, but it also was much like the the moment in which it was produced, it was kind of this like blurry, vague, fuzzy form um that was allowed people to be both the um the social surveyors, I should say, to be both kind of like close and distant from their subject, right? Um, Especially when they started writing about it. Um, There was a way in which, in its narrativization of the social, right? it would allow, because the way that when they were assembled, there would be kind of narrative text and prose and then charts, right? So there was kind of a way to explain what you were seeing. Um, And so the narrativization of the social allowed for kind of more affordances for the um, social surveyors and writers to account for what they were seeing. Um, And so it became really, really popular amongst Black intellectuals, the most famous probably being W. B. Du Bois, who really was like, okay, if I'm if I'm here with the people, I can see things that we might not be able to see otherwise, right? Um, I'm kind of both insider and outsider. And then I can compile an entire document that shows kind of the social rhythms, um, that shows kind of the historical backbeat to why things are the way they are. So it's kind of fanning out. The, the social life of facts, as it were, um, which is what the social survey, in theory, um, could do. Um, or what I think uh, the way that I talk about it in the book is that there was this kind of like aspiration, um, an aspirational sense that was underpinning or animating the social survey. Ultimately, it could never do what everybody wanted it to do. Um, but at this moment, it, there was so much energy around it as a new kind of a new mode of collection a new method and kind of um also a a new form yeah amazing so your your thoughts there on
3: this as the social survey as both a method and a form is really um uh, fascinating, I think, really important for historians of science and also STS scholars, because your your description of it as blurry and thinking about the the narrativization that it allows,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, it just helped me start to get a touch of traction with the concept of aesthetics, which I will say that I'm not so uh, not so strong on um, in in my from my own field. Um, and um, also just to register for listeners that in the book, um, both what you write explicitly and then in your your own method mm-hmm. of uh, following different sort of um, communities and actors really resonates with Sadia Hartman's work. Um yeah. And um, that you can see sort of the 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 care that you're taking there in the spirit yeah. in the spirit of her work. And so picking up, though, on this thread of um, Du Bois and thinking about how Hartman uses Du Bois um, uh, in her own work, and how you're actually using Du Bois here, um mm-hmm. I want to hand hand the floor over to Beatrice.
2: Yes. Um, you choose the work of Du Bois as starting point. To bringing in other cultural producers throughout the book what led you to such an approach and what influence did Du Bois work have on your writing thinking and view of the world thank you um I'm a proud student of Saidi Hartman so I feel like her her the mark of her is all over this book um so I mean I feel like I wasn't so much led to Du Bois as like, I couldn't escape him when I was working in this time period. So in the beginning I was like, there's no way I'm gonna write about Du Bois. This is a rabbit hole that I do not wanna go down. There's too much writing. There's the archive is too big. Everybody writes about him. I can't wrestle with this figure and what he means for so many fields, right? And so many scholars. And at the very same time, he was everywhere I looked and in places that I didn't even expect to find him. Um, So I was like, if I'm gonna be talking about this time period, forget about talking about social science and data and surveys. Even before I kind of knew that those would be my my landing pads, I was like, I have to deal with Du Bois in some way. Um, Just because I think that he is a through line and an interlocutor um, sometimes in, in positive ways. Some people were antagonistic towards him in this time period. Everybody was, was thinking with him and most people were. Um, so that's the, the simple answer. I mean, the more complex answer is that I also saw in Du Bois, um, I saw Du Bois grappling with something that I was also grappling with about this time period, which is kind of how do we make sense of what was really clearly on the one hand, so many figures, African American figures from this time period's commitment to the idea that facts and data could be transformative. And on the other hand, their extreme kind of skepticism, if not like outward derision towards it. And these things were always kind of existing at the same time. I saw it in Kelly Miller. I saw it in Du Bois. I saw it in folks like Hill um, Hurston, who I talk about in chapter three. And so Du Bois was somebody who I would argue never quite, quite, reconciled this tension between the transformative value of data and facts and and their extreme violence um, and their limits. And so for me, it felt really useful to kind of have him as a through line in the book um, to draw out kind of the way that this the stakes of this question shifted according to the time period in which he was writing. So what Du Bois might say about it in 1896 when he was working with the social survey was much different than what he might say about it in 1911 versus 19 you know 28 or something like that. So kind of he became a way for me to highlight or amplify that kind of the the, the thread that links together this 1898-1930 to period is perhaps ambivalent, right? It's, it's an open question that never gets resolved. And he's also somebody who saw aesthetics as a cat, a category is not the right word, aesthetics as the site, <laughs> I'm gonna be big here, um, that might actually resolve or not, if not resolve, offer some potential resolution, I think he never was quite resolved with it, to the, the tension between data and um, data's promises and its its violence or its affordances and its limits. Um, so I opened the book by ca- talking about Quest of the Silver Fleece, which is for all intents and purposes a novel and aesthetic, a work of aesthetic expression, right? That it's fiction, it's a novel, it's experimental. Um, But it's also a text that he said himself, you know, it's it's more of an economic study than a novel. And it came at this moment where he's really trying to figure out um, how to kind of write data and aesthetics alongside each other. Um, I mean, it's something he never gave up on. And so aesthetic production really became a useful site, whether it be kind of performance or the novel um, or a short story. Um, It became a really productive site for me to look at as a location where the tension between, or the interplay between data and black life gets staged. Um, and so I don't have a really in-depth definition of a- aesthetics, I'm not like a Kantian or anything like that, but I the really useful way that I started thinking about it in this book, because I would also get the question like, what's, what's the aesthetics here? How are you understanding it? And what does it have to do with data? And for me, Aesthetics, much like data, system, data is a value system that determines what and who matters, right? Um, so it really is ordering the sensible, right? Ordering the sensible and the in the visual and the legible world in terms of what matters and what doesn't, and that's exactly what what data purports to do, to right? Organize the sensible world into the the sensible and the nonsensible and everything that's in between. So to think about data as as a kind of a, as a site of ex- aesthetic expression for me is to kind of think about that, that value system and then conversely to read these aesthetic productions as productions that are also generating data or kind of data as expressive forms.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
3: Yeah, that's really great. Um, because one of the, the things that's so, um, I feel like important about the book is showing the relationship between work that at least in um, 21st century academic disciplines is typically typically um, categorized as social science yeah. and work that is cultural production or literary production. And um through Du Bois, but many others. You you use him as basically a touchstone to to lead you to other people um, and actors that um, that it's this this interplay of things that retroactively are coded as falling into one of these two categories in which they were both making truth claims.
2: Right, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, and everything was so messy. Like there was no clear line and everything was like, Kind of a desperation was underpinning this moment. Like we have to solve the problem of free black life. So, like I feel like it was like throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks, like really trying anything to make sense of this, yeah, yeah. And what you're
3: one of the things you're showing also is the um that there's not necessarily um homogeneity around um the idea of a survey, yeah a, as a method in a format at this yeah. time. And so um, on the issue of surveys and its varieties, I want to um, uh, hand over to Lingyi. Um, I think although
2: you already mentioned some of um, uh, something about this social survey, but I really want to know more about like um, um, how um, what is the stake of the Du Bois work. If we compare with some earlier European statisticians, for example, like uh, John Snow and Florence Nightingale, who were both using graphical method to present their statistics. And mm-hmm. I just want to know more about this part um, because I, I saw this like similarities yeah. between their presentations. Yeah, so I think that's a really, it's really useful to think about him. And, and thank you for that. Think about Du Bois as somebody who wasn't just kind of emerging out of thin air in, in his, his use of statistics and diagrammatics and um, data visualization, that there is this long long and deep history, right, um, depending on what what geographical location we're orienting, or, orienting ourselves in that can stretch back to like antiquity, right? Of people using um, kind of forms or expressions of data visualization, right? So he didn't just kind of come out of thin air and innovate this, he did, he was an innovator but I think that there is a way that um, we don't, we tend to not, you know, kind of think of the rigor with which he was working and in, in his own deep training and all of these methods. With all that to say, I think for what we see Du Bois kind of innovating in something like the Philadelphia Negro, um, which was all just black and white, right? They had the map in the middle, and it was all black and white graphs. And Alexander Wahalia talks about this quite beautifully. Um, But what he was insisting upon in the graphics themselves, right, was kind of the historical understanding of present conditions, right? And that in and of itself, to think of a historical life of facts and data was something that I don't think had been at the heart of, or um, at least a preoccupation of some of these other um, folks who were using statistical graphic representations and things like that and so for and again this is you know part of alexander wahalia's claim that i'm just I'm parroting back is that the stakes of this in 1896 would have been quite high when people weren't kind of thinking about structural racism at all that was not a term so everything was just um kind of this is the biological fact of blackness instead of thinking about the conditions that produce what people understood as pathology or degeneracy right this wasn't this didn't have to be this way and we have to historicize it and we also have to insist upon a deep historical life of the conditions of blacks living in the us it didn't just come in 18 you know 65 right so he really traces back well into you know deep 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 in it th- before the 19th century to think about kind of this longer history of a black social present, and I think that was radical um, in
3: 1896. Yeah, this is so helpful. Um, even though there's been so much um, work on Du Bois for really like thickening um, yeah. ways of thinking about um, the survey in all of these other directions. Yeah. Um, um, beyond that. So to shift to the next technology then, in chapter, the, the, the robust chapter two, section two, <laughs> <laughs> you're looking um, at this new um, unstable technology of the photograph moving mm-hmm. after the, the, um, the social survey. Mm-hmm. And in this chapter, you're specifically looking at anti lynching photography so there's a lot of work on um lynching photography yeah. um in terms of memorabilia documentation and these kinds of things and you're you're um uh, uh, uh pulling out the anti-lynching um zon- genre and practices through yeah. photography and the the chapter focuses on the baker family and this was a family that was lynched and there's um you know, many forms of evidence, photographs, court documents, literary accounts. And um, conventionally, this kind of evidence reinforces the, the aim of technology, um, like the, the, um, the aim of the Holocaust and and concentration camps for, um, um, for many scholars, which is to murder. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the photographic technology was sort of in one direction, it was really a prize for being able to document this, this fact of lynching mm-hmm. um, because the photograph was prized for its ability to fix things down and pin things down and hold them still. But the Baker family completely defied photography even as they were being photographed um, because they survived the lynching. And the photo, so the photographs. What they end up doing is not, you know, fixing uh, the murdered black body, but instead they end up producing evidence of survival that yeah. the the Baker family members, the women and and children, survived. Uh-huh. It's not they didn't escape, they didn't avoid altogether. They actually endured yeah. this technology of murder and live beyond it and showed the political possibility of freedom and safety, something other than, other than death. Um, and you coin this phrase that I really love because it's so, um, I, I find it so evocative because it has two, me- you give it two meanings and you can also, you, you show us how to recognize it in the photographic evidence. And you show um, a series of family photographs taken of the Baker family after the lynching. um, And they are in what we could just imagine as a sort of a conventional um, of of the time uh, setup for a family photograph. And you use the term looking out to describe what is happening um, by the sort of the matron of the family in this photograph. And she has a very, uh, intense and focused expression on her face, and you and you say that you use the term "looking out" to understand what the what the photograph was doing, the yeah. photograph technology generally was doing, because it's a um, a position from which to um, look out into the future and at future individuals, but also the phrase "look out" as a warning. As in, um, you know, there there's danger. You really yeah. need to, to look out. Yeah. Um, and so, I wonder if you could just um, sort of work through your interpretive strategy with the Baker photograph, because it's such a persuasive um, insight that you have. But how you go about building this argument with yeah. with the photographs?
2: Yeah. Um, Thank you. Um, I worked on the, with this this archive um for a really long time, trying to figure out how to kind of tell this story of a family um five of six of whom survived the lynching and and two who did not. um, and this kind of really unwieldy archive that emerged around them um and through them in a lot of ways and a large part of that as you noted was photographic so I found at least I think eight or nine um cabinet cards and so like I think they were three by five and and some eight and a half by eleven photographs of the family and as you say I was really struck by the eldest daughter Rosa and her um of, she was the only one who seemed to register any changing emotion in the photograph. So in all of the images, the family really seems to just be kind of still, they look like nine takes, right? Um, Very subtly changing. Like if it was the equivalent of like a, um, the live button on your camera that we have now, like it would have been really Rosa would have been the only one who was moving. Everybody else would have been would have been the same. But it's this really subtle kind of shift in what I initially read as like laughter. It's kind of a, a sly smile. Maybe I, I didn't describe it as a smirk. Um, but somehow, you know, a different kind of um, presence in the, in the photographer's studio. And these were like a a Victorian photography studio. So even when you were describing it and you were like photographs of lynching survivors and I'm like, um, it, it, I, even myself, I had to be reminded that it looks like a regular, like regular and air quotes family photograph in a Victorian photography studio. You wouldn't register these as, as victims of lynching at first, which I think is kind of part of their power, um, or part of the rhetorical work that they're doing. Okay, so how did I get to um, thinking about this idea of looking out one of the things that the photographs seemed to demand and it was the first part of this really capacious archive that I encountered. Um, was it necessitated a, a critical framework and a visual analytic that allowed one to see lynching as something that one lives with that one death that doesn't always end life and that one lives through um, and to see lynching as kind of an, a, a durational temporal quote-unquote event. And I don't even like to use the word event because normally when, when lynching is described as an event, it's an event with a beginning and an end and the end is always death and this this kind of complies with the, the way that scholars have long thought of lynching as um, is is moving according to kind of a theatrical event right it has a start time and an end time but i was like how do i make sense of this family who survived a lynching and yet is in being captured by this photographic technology that's supposed to arrest and control but their the very condition of survivalhood is kind of a temporal a temporal position and um that that defies these terms of capture so there was again this kind of asymmetry between the real subjective reality of his family who survived a lynching, kind of like. The- what it means ontologically to survive something and then lynching photography which seems to just kind of have an entirely different temporality and and object and goal in mind Um, and so looking out for me kind of on the most basic level describes what Rosa Baker is doing in the photograph she's looking out rather than kind of meeting the gaze of where we would assume the photographer is based on where all her other family's gaze is going she seems to be looking in a different direction direction so either beyond to the right of the camera to the left of camera above the camera but certainly not training her her eyes or her gaze in the same place as as the rest of her family so she seems to be looking in a different direction um so that's just kind of what is happening kind of technically or materially um in the photograph but the other thing that looking out seemed to be able to do was name this kind of different temporality of lynching, which I was trying to get at, which is always about kind of the ongoingness of of this kind of racial violence, right? Um, That it doesn't just coalesce in the the crime of lynching, um, that it actually kind of, it, it can't be measured by this single event, right? People live with it in all kinds of ways. It moves through the body, either as kind of fear or longing or loss or different feelings of vulnerability, especially for those who like the Baker survived. So looking out as kind of an anticipatory um, perspective, right, Um, it's to always be kind of living on what Arielle Azulay would describe as the threshold of catastrophe, right, kind of this position, names this position of precarity um, that certainly, Continues to define Black life, particularly in this 1898 um, moment, 99 moment when the Baker photograph was taken. So it's about kind of anticipating. It's about naming what it means to live in a sense of precarious space of precarity and and threshold catastrophe. Um, for me, it was a way of kind of complicating this paradigm of of oppositional looking that that seemed to really um, overdetermine readings of. Either black portraiture or lynching photography. That the goal there was to kind of reverse the gaze and take some power back. Um, this seemed to be doing something much different. Um, so for me, it's also an ethical way of looking at these photographs for us um, in our in our current moment to not immediately relegate them to the past, but to think about kind of the the openness, the ongoingness of of, of the photographic um, meaning and message. So that's a long answer, (laughs) but it's, I mean, it was such a, the looking out was like oddly kind of the first part of the puzzle for me. And then I was like, okay, like, how do I piece together? There were performances, there were films, there were posters, there was a court case, like how does this all kind of comport? And and how do we make sense of the fact that people took, you know, photographs were commissioned. This wasn't the family's family's choice, I don't think.
3: Hmm. No, I I love that. This is my favorite kind of um, scholarly conversation because you're you you both what sort of instructed us on how to go about reading something like these sets of photographs and and talking about specifically how you can see there the comparatively. there's some people who are um, looking at the photographer, so they have that um, end point gaze and and how Rosa is looking yeah. beyond um, yeah. and that you can actually see that in this the the seriality of the photographs so how you can see the shifts also yeah that's that actually yeah it's, like a, it's
2: almost like a flip book and it's I mean for me yeah. the other thing was that like you know I think to try to to make photographs lynching photographs even if, if it's a photograph of an image of a violated black body or family photographs like this, which I also think of uh, in the book, I classify them as lynching photographs. Um, I think part of the the challenge for black cultural producers and intellectuals at this time period was precisely, how do we use these photographs in a way that is not going to reinscribe kind of the abjectness, the um, disposability, kind of the, the captive capturedness of black life. And so how do you kind of use a photograph to, I think I describe it in the book as kind of sound an alarm, right? To do something um, and not just for a moment but kind of an ongoing kind of political action. And so looking out is also kind of sounding a, a kind of a visual praxis that will sound an alarm that doesn't allow the images just to be relegated to the past too quickly or, or dismissed as, as mere evidence.
3: Yeah, I, I love being able to think about the ethics of the work itself and the ethics of the, yeah. the evidence Um, and I do also want to flag for for listeners that in this chapter in particular uh, but also other chapters as well there's a a lot of insight about um, gender as well in the place of these technologies but what I really I want to touch in on is this issue of temporality through the technology of photography and um, the this the false, the impossibility of having a boundedness, sort of creating an event with a start and a finish and a particular teleology in there. So for here, I'd love to have Ashley pick it up. Yeah, so in class, we discussed themes of white supremacy and
2: deviance in comparison to normative behavior mm-hmm. and how labeling individuals as deviant filters out anyone who doesn't fit or match with the norm as defined by power holders. Mm-hmm. So in chapter two, the Baker family were seemingly very strategic in their method of leaving out visual context, uh, thus preventing the storybook explanation and ending. That the individuals in the courtroom had kind of gathered around to hear. And mm-hmm. what do you think the impact of their non-normative testification was? And how does that impact the topic of deviance? Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. Thank you. Um, so the moment um that Ashley's talking about is in chapter two, I kind of traced the the Baker family from the moment where they were lynched and the family survived to their emergence as really stars and icons. Although I'll be briefly on the anti-lynching activist performance stage where they kind of of enacted or reenacted their status as survivors by showing their wounds and and being part of this larger performance repertoire. And so in between that, there was a trial of the 11 men who were accused of lynching um, the patriarch of the family, Fraser Baker, the youngest daughter, and they were, Charged with endangerment, and also, I mean, this is the important part, destruction of government property, because Fraser Baker was a postmaster, which means he you know, ran the postal operations, and when they um, lynched him and attempted to lynch the rest of the family, they set fire to the house, which was the post office, and burned mail, so it was considered a federal crime. So this is like probably the only reason why it went to trial, because people just weren't tried in federal trial for lynching at this time period. And so the Bakers were called to testify Um, on the stand. Um, And I read the testimony of um, Lavinia Baker, who is the mother, and Rosa and Cora, who are the two oldest daughters. And one of the things that's, you know, quite striking is that they really render the scene in what I describe as anti-photographic terms. So there's this expectation of what's going to happen when one bears witness to a crime in general. When one's on the witness stand, we are supposed to divulge everything, right? Utter transparency, kind of recreate the scene of the crime. Um, and and in this case, perform your role within the lynching or would be lynching drama. Um, In this case, for Lavinia Baker, it would have been mourning mother and and, um, wife and almost victim, or she was a victim in so many ways in her own right. But they really refused to comply with this formula. Um, They kind of evade the important details most namely, like, did you see the attackers? And they they say, no, um, I didn't see them. I couldn't see them. And as they keep kind of denying that they saw, you know, who attacked them, which was probably the truth, or maybe it was a survival strategy, um, they kind of keep saying I couldn't see it there were too many guns and the flash blinded me and the the bullets were the flash and they kind of render the the crime scene as a photographic encounter that ultimately doesn't reveal anything it doesn't give us what we want which is the identities of the victims or the identity of the family as kind of these these passive mourners instead they're they're either totally opaque in their descriptions, or they kind of emerge as theorists of photography, I argue. So they're not kind of doing what they're supposed to do. And so to finally answer your question, Ashley, I mean, what happens then is that it's total crisis. It's like a conceptual and categorical crisis. Like they don't know if these people are are victims or survivors or like evidence or or not. and it's a mistrial, which isn't entirely surprising, right? But when you read the transcripts, you can see um, you can see the uh, defense attorneys just kind of like getting frustrated when they're going through the questioning and, and keep trying to get them to answer the questions and to comply with their roles. And what I describe as kind of this, this theater of, of the courtroom. Um, and so on the one hand, it's this categorical crisis that ends in a mistrial. On the other hand, this crisis or this instability, I I don't even know if I say this in the book, but I'm just thinking it now, really provides the conditions of possibility for this white woman reformer to come in um, as she does shortly thereafter and try to like repurpose the Baker family to to matter in a different way. So kind of the instability or the um, the, the interpretive messiness of this family's courtroom um, testimony I think was like, okay, there's, there's something here in the, um, in this family, maybe I can make them mean something different. Um, Yeah, so I think that's kind of, I think what, what this, the stakes of that are. And I mean, most obviously, or maybe not obviously, but I think most seemingly, seemingly simple answer to that also is, is that it, it just again, under, underlines one of the points of the book, which is that there's just not a, the easy compatibility between Black people and evidence, right? Like they can't serve as evidence in this way on the court stand like they're supposed to. Like they've totally failed in the eyes of the law in that um role. They are evidencing something else, I argue, which is kind of the incompatibility of photo- photography and, and racial violence or photography's inability to ever capture racial violence in its in its complexity. Yeah,
3: this is so um so great. And I feel like this the stakes are also for um sort of in the the vein of history of science and science tech t- and technology studies is around understandings of witnessing yeah. and the courtroom as a site of witnessing because yeah. um, sort of the conventional line in history of science and STS is that what it means to experiment is to have a public witnessing among you more understand. than one person of, of something yeah. so that you can like intersubjectively establish it as true. And so the, the idea that they are Court witnesses and they are they are providing evidence, but yeah. it's just they're not doing it in a in a way that fits with the standardized way yeah. um, that's supposed to make sense of yeah. photography and all of these other things. It's just so um, so evocative. I feel like for these so many fields, yeah,
2: it's so interesting.
3: Yeah, um, and so so finally, you've been so generous with with your time. So I just want to I want to to signal that the the third chapter is about the third technology that the book um, is exploring in terms of the experimental possibilities during this time period, and that's film. And here the 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 launching point, the touchstone is uh, Zora Neale Hurston, and. Your concept that's really important for this this yeah. uh, chapter in particular is overexposure yeah. and the the idea of of uh, overexposure and to open out this conversation around um, around film, I'd love to have Alicia take it over. Yeah. So over the last century and even the past few decades, there have been vast improvements in the technology and accessibility of film. And it's no longer limited by the burden of a traditional camera, actual roles of film available, and physically having to like cut and splice it all together. So, how do you think this accessibility of film impacts the value and meaning of the data being produced
1: within a racialized modernity?
2: And that r- racialized modernity is like our right now, our 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's such a good question. Um, hmm. I mean, on the one hand, okay, on the one hand, I think, like, what, if people in the 19th century thought that it was, like, the democratizing of photography, like, they had no idea what they were in for um, with the 21st century. Um, So, on the one hand, I think that, like, I think we've seen in really clear ways what kind of the, um, kind of, the ease with which people can record and film things has had really tangible political and social implications. And I think we can even think of something like, um, you know, we can obviously think of the ways in which kind of, people when they are pulled over by police, right? Or by agents of the state, like kind of their first impulse now is to record. So it becomes like an agent of, of, of safety or protection, right? It becomes, you know, a witness that we wouldn't have otherwise. So I think in that way, it's, it's, um, there's really clear consequences. I think on the, at the very same time or I should say, and, um, I think part of the challenge is that it also means that they're, they're not that there should ever be a control of who or what can, should be producing media, but I think that there is, so I think also like the ease with which it, which videos can be taken and then circulated, that's also part of a different kind of technological infrastructure where it's not just about taking, but it's that, you know, the grid can, hold the transmission really quickly like i remember when you used to have to like upload a video and then i would send it and receive it and download it but kind of the speed with which things are transmitted and we receive them i think also um kind of in one way can um compress what i might argue is kind of the, the especially when it comes to images of violence kind of it can compress Um, the event into a a temporality that for me doesn't feel quite so easy, um, or quite so I don't feel at ease with. And I think it can also kind of the volume can kind of has runs the risk of overwhelming us in to the extent of inaction. Um, This might be an inadequate answer to your question. But um, I think it's shifting so quickly too. like, even though the you know, the examples that I used to think about were, I think are outdated now. Um, So I'm not sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think think this is really, uh, no, no, this this is really,
3: um, uh, I I feel like it really opens up a lot about um, things you're talking about in terms of aesthetics. So the idea of being overwhelmed simply in terms of volume, as opposed to overwhelmed in an aesthetic sense in which, uh, something that's happening in this alleged form of evidence is just exceeding how I'm supposed to be understanding the event itself so yeah. it's just this, this aesthetic um, situation and how it might be easy to confuse it, that with um, just mere volume of information yeah, yeah um,
2: that's, that's right I mean I was the example that comes to mind for me is is and it might seem obvious but is that you know the the video of the George Floyd murder, which was really protracted in length, and also for all kinds of reasons was circulating, like really rapidly, and kind of a lot, right. Um, so you couldn't even open a social media spread or any any tab on your computer um, would sh- show over and over and over again, different people's encounters with it, reactions to it, snippets of it. And I heard from so many people, like I just had to stop looking or I got overwhelmed or like, and so I think that that kind of um, paralysis, right? Which is also certainly part of kind of the aesthetic work of, of, um, of, of, the the emotional or affective work of aesthetics, right, it kind of overwhelms, um, often to the point of of paralysis. Um, But when that paralysis, then I worry that that paralysis actually doesn't have the opportunity to translate into political action. Um, And so I think that kind of that's the risk that I worry about. Um, some people were like, I, I, and I, for, I didn't watch the video. I'm like this, I don't need to see eight minutes of this. And I certainly don't need to see eight minutes of it for three hours straight on my news Um, And so I think that for me really crystallized some problems. Um, but on the other hand, I think there's all these opportunities for like amazing kind of filmic work that's happening now independently. I think that it's a, a lot, it's allowing folks to kind of make really astute, smart films and arguments and, and kind of pressing against the limits and the boundaries of what even counts as film and recording in ways that are, I think, super exciting. Um, so I think that, you know, it doesn't, the way that I think about it is usually in terms of kind of like documentary, but I think when it comes to other kinds of filmmaking, there's there's really exciting work.
3: Yeah, there's so much in contemporary art right now yeah. that is yeah. uh you know you can't even say it's one part documentary and yeah one part. No, it's sort of it's expressive work it's just like yeah. it's all it's all together um, and yeah. and i i feel like this com- this piece of the conversation also gets at um the the ethics of uh as you're pointing out the circulation yeah. of materials as well because we were really um interested in um Moved by your decisions to reproduce images in the book itself, while also being really careful about thinking around what it means to reproduce images yeah. and to recirculate images. So to, to yeah. use sort of the the um, the transformative reproductions of yeah. these these technological uh, fruits yeah. and possibilities yeah um oh so many different directions we we could go in i'm going to hand it over to to sort of wrap us up here
2: hi so in chapter three you discussed the metaphor of the spyglass Mm -hmm. which is being part of a community and also studying that community Mm -hmm. i find it similar to du bois's idea of double consciousness Mm um did you feel as though this metaphor of the spyglass applied to you while writing This book, since it is about black scholars and scientists who saw new technologies for creating data. That's such an interesting question. Um, I hadn't thought about it as applying to me in the writing process, but I also think that I've only recently begun to really think about, um, kind of take a step back and think about the writing process a little bit more, Complexly, I think I was so close to it for so long. And then when the book first came out, I was like, I don't want to look at this book again. But I've been thinking more about kind of my own, my own writerly practice and my own positionality and kind of how I related to the material in the book, as I wrote. Um, So I don't, I think that interestingly, if I was to kind of thinking on the fly, I think that I would reject the metaphor of the spyglass to uh, as a metaphor that describes what I was trying to do in the book. Because I think one of the things that's tricky for me about the spyglass, even when Sarah Neale Hurston is using it to describe kind of what she, what she was tasked with doing in the introduction to the to Mules and Men, um, she, you know, I had a spyglass of anthropology, but then she says it was too tight. Like she, it wasn't, it was fitting me like a tight chemise, right? Um, I, could, I could see the community, but there was something about kind of the mediating technology or the uh, of for her anthropology or right the mediating methodology that wasn't actually giving her the, the the intimacy and proximity that she she knew she could she knew she was in this black community right so the spyglass to her was a little clunky even though it was illuminating um and so i think maybe i would have like an augmented spyglass one that was like maybe approaching or approximating um, approaching, I guess would be the right word, the figures that I'm writing about, but while refusing to ever kind of pin them down. So like in the book, I really tried to let the characters move. And I say characters, but most of them are, are real, except the people, the figures in the novels that I write about, like let them roam, let them move, like let them come out of focus, let them come back into the frame. Like I really tried to follow the routes that they were taking me. Um And I think there's something about the spyglass as an anthropological tool that is actually about a fixing. And I think that's why it felt a little bit clunky for Zora Hurston. And that's why, you know, in chapter three, I'm like, you know, the spyglass is a really useful metaphor for thinking about anthropology. Um, But I also think kind of the camera for her was another technology that maybe in its its nimbleness or presumed nimbleness um, could allow the black light to kind of come in and come out of the frame. Um, So maybe it would be something closer to like the 16 millimeter handheld camera. Um, And I think I got that Hurston quote a little bit wrong when I was trying to to run it back. Um, But there's something about kind of the blurriness, the the movement um, that I was trying to capture, capture, (laughs) kind of convey um, in the text. Thank you so much for that. In
3: thinking about your own, um, your own writing practices and sort of the ethics of writing, I also want to uh, flag for listeners that you also do a lot of work on um, the circulation of texts of literary um, texts, and this effort again of, of technologies of pinning things down, but when thinking about um, black literary production in your in your current project thinking about the 1960s, how that opens up all kinds of experimental possibilities that head in all kinds of different directions. Yeah. Um, and I also want to flag for listeners something I also am really excited about, which is your project um, with the Tony Morrison Archives at mm-hmm. princeton, your your home institution. Yes. and to to note sort of this intertextuality that in um, in the book that we are talking about today, the Matter of Black Living. That you begin that with a quotation from Morrison as well I, <laughs> on on data, on data. On so data, I know. The, the data geeks out there. Um, yep. Definitely read this book and and everybody. Um, Autumn Womek, thank you so much thank for you your guys. time. We really appreciate it. This
2: was such a treat. I really appreciate the careful and close reading. Thank you. Thanks so much. Great. Autumn, um,
3: your generosity is incredible. Um, thanks yes. so much. I talk and-